The Presidencies of the United States is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. How long shall we submit to this system of indignity and injustice? Some measure of stronger character than any you have yet taken must be adopted, or we shall become a proverb of weakness and irresolution. U.S. Minister to France John Armstrong, Jr. to Senator Samuel Smith, September 16, 1809. Independently of the means which we may ourselves and at our own expense resort for the better securing of our internal and external tranquility in this territory, we intend to express to the general government our wish that one regiment of regular troops be permanently stationed at New Orleans. Our territory, owing to its situation as a frontier and to other reasons which it would be too long to detail, being more exposed than any other part of the United States to external and internal dangers. Orleans Territorial Governor, William C. C. Claiborne, February 1811. As we've seen in recent episodes, tensions were mounting for Americans at home and abroad. Word of Macon's Bill No. 2 made its way across the Atlantic to Europe in the summer of 1810, and it was anyone's guess as to how the British and French governments would react to its carrot-and-stick approach of imposing non-intercourse on the enemy nation of whichever of the two agreed to resolve their differences with the United States. Meanwhile, the Confederacy of Native Nations being built by Tecumseh and Tenskwatawa was making white settlers in the West, as well as politicians in Washington, nervous. Then, as we saw last episode, the Madison administration and its agents in the lower Mississippi were working in 1810 to bring West Florida into the American fold without provoking war with Spain, banking on the fact that the Junta government in Cadiz had more than enough on their plates with being under siege by the French and with revolts starting to pop up in more valuable colonies in other parts of the Americas. In this episode, we'll explore more of how the Madison administration's troubles continued to ratchet up as 1810 faded into 1811. But before we do that, I'd like to take the opportunity to welcome you to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Special thanks to my husband, Alex, and Sean of the Advent of Computing podcast for providing the intro quotes for this episode. To start with the latter first. In the present day of this recording, the year 2022, computers surround denizens of many nations each and every day, but Sean takes his listeners back to a time when this was not the case. In the advent of computing, he explores the various components, sometimes literal, that came together to forge the path to the age of computing. If you're interested in exploring this history of a subset of 20th century technology and learning how, bite by bite, the systems that we use today came to be, then I hope you'll check out the advent of computing when you're done with this episode. I'll have links on my social media around the release of this episode, as well as in the sources note for this episode, or you can go to the advent of computing, all one word, dot com. As for my second reader, I've talked before about the fact that my husband Alex was the inspiration for this podcast. He's also the primary person that I bounce ideas off of as I think through new episodes or new features for the podcast. It's always a pleasant surprise when he gets the right answer on a presidential history trivia question or rattles off a random history factoid. Though he may never be the presidential history geek that I am, 
I'd like to say that I've been a good influence on him and have taught him a few things along the way. Likewise, I couldn't do this without his support, encouragement, ideas, suggestions, and much, much more. Most of all, I couldn't do this without his love. Je t'aime avec tout mon cœur, mon mari. Though I normally do this at the end, I wanted to take a moment at the beginning of the episode to thank our patrons before we get started, as their contributions have been invaluable in offsetting the cost of editing services, which helped me to get more episodes out at a faster pace, as well as the fast amount of research materials needed to uncover all of the various elements that contributed to the history of the Madison presidency. They are amazing folks, one and all, and I cannot begin to thank them enough for their generosity and support. Thanks so much to Matthew C., Michelle, Jeremy, Ike, Matthew N., Joshua, Eric, Howard, Michael, and Scott. If you'd like to join them in supporting presidencies as a patron, just go to patreon.com presidencies and sign up. There are many benefits in the various patron tiers, but all patrons get access to an ad-free podcast feed. If you'd like to contribute to the efforts of the podcast in other ways, leaving a rating and review on your podcast app of choice is always appreciated. There's also a place on the website where you can leave reviews. That website, if you don't know it already, is Presidency's Podcast, all one word, dot com. There, you can also find sources used for this episode. With all that said, let's dive in. Let's start this episode in Paris with John Armstrong, the U.S. Minister to France. The last time we checked in on Armstrong in episode 4.7, Armstrong was finding himself getting the same runaround that nearly every other U.S. minister to France that we've discussed in the narrative has gotten. Armstrong had already requested his recall in late 1808, so he knew that his time in France was drawing to a close. However, the French government wasn't necessarily eager for Armstrong to leave. Though Armstrong was known to take a harsh tone in his communications with the imperial government, it seems that they preferred his brutesque honesty to more flowery lies and misdirection. Armstrong agreed to stay until the spring of 1810. In that time, Armstrong had to deal with the French response to the Non-Intercourse Act of 1809, which was, quote, that France would not allow her allies a trade that she may be excluded from. But if England revoked her blockading orders, then France would withdraw her decrees. Armstrong sent back word to leaders in Washington that he felt the U.S. should declare war on both Britain and France and be done with it. As we discussed in episode 4.11, that would not be the course that the U.S. government would take, instead opting for another try at economic coercion with Macon's Bill No. 2. Before word of it arrived, though, there were some developments in Paris. As noted by Armstrong biographer C. Edward Skeen, quote, During the next few months, contrary to Armstrong's expectations, there seemed to be a disposition on the part of several French officials to improve relations with the United States. Armstrong remained skeptical, and given the track record, as we've seen, he was quite justified in that. Still, again from Skeen, quote, two contradictory aspects of French policy were evident in the fall of 1809. On the one hand, Armstrong was aware that discussions were taking place in the French cabinet, pointing toward an amelioration of the restrictive continental system, while on the other hand, there were hints supported by actions, that indicated an even harsher system. In fact, both forces were operating 
simultaneously. The end of the year would see no resolution, but shortly into the new year, on January 18th, Armstrong received a message from an aide to the French foreign minister, Jean-Baptiste de Nombert de Champagny, who had been not too long before awarded the honorific of Duc de Cadot. The message to Armstrong, quote, requested a written memorandum stating the terms the United States required for a treaty. Again, Armstrong was skeptical, and besides, he was preparing to head home. He was tired of the constant runaround with the government of Emperor Napoleon. The last thing they needed was for him to repeat for the umpteenth time what the American terms were. Still, he did his due diligence and sent back two points. Quote, the first point stipulated the restoration of all sequestered property. The second granted the concession that any ship, on proof that it had paid tribute to England, would be liable to confiscation. But otherwise, commerce would be placed under no restraints. As noted by Skeen, quote, Armstrong undoubtedly treated this approach too lightly. Napoleon was furious when he read Armstrong's brief reply and directed Cador to instruct the French minister to the U.S., Louis-Marie Thoreau, to inform the Madison administration, quote, that it was not represented here, that its minister does not know French, is a morose man with whom one cannot treat, that all obstacles would be raised if they had here an envoy to be talked with. By this point, the French government had changed its mind and was ready to show Armstrong the door. On March 10th, Armstrong was informed that the French emperor, quote, has decided to sell the American property seized in Spain, but the money arising therefrom shall remain in depot. Naturally, Armstrong wrote a letter in protest, but it did no good. On March 23, 1810, Napoleon signed what has come to be known as the Rambouillet Decree, quote, which ordered the seizure and sale of all American vessels that had entered the empire since the past May 20th, 1809. As described by Skeen, quote, by this stroke, he, i.e. Napoleon, laid his hands on several million dollars of American property and, as typically for Napoleon, it was retroactive in its effects, was executed secretly, and was not announced until later on May 14th. When Armstrong learned of this decree, he wrote back to the administration informing them that he didn't see it being done in response to the Non-Intercourse Act, but rather due to the act's quote-unquote non-execution, as there were so many flagrant violations of it. Early in July, Armstrong learned that the Non-Intercourse Act had been replaced by Macon's bill, and though the news arrived from an unofficial source, the minister still felt it his duty to inform Cador, who of course responded that he could not act until he heard official word of it. I mean, who would act without receiving official confirmation, hmm? President Madison, we'd never do that with something like, oh, say, the Erskine Agreement, right? But I digress. Armstrong had done his duty and waited every day for either an official copy of Macon's bill or, more preferably, his recall orders. He waited and waited and waited. Napoleon and his government grew increasingly frustrated with Armstrong, but he could not act without official instructions from his government, and the last that he had received had been from December 1st, 1809. 
Napoleon even had Cador write to U.S. Minister to Russia John Quincy Adams, complaining, quote, that we have here an American minister who says nothing. We need an active man whom one can comprehend and by whose means we could come to an understanding with the Americans. The impasse continued as the summer in France wound on, and as it turned out, for once, the French would be the first to blink. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts. On July 27th, rumors start circulating in Parisian government circles that the American Congress, quote, have been called into special session, possibly to declare war on France. That was a step further than Napoleon wanted to go. And after receiving official notification of Macon's bill in early August, his government could finally act. A letter with the date of August 5th was drafted by Cador and presented to Armstrong. In this letter, the French foreign minister, quote, announced that the Berlin and Milan decrees would cease to have effect after November 1st, it being understood that, in consequence of this declaration, the English shall revoke their orders in council and renounce the new principles of blockade which they have wished to establish, or that the United States, comfortably to the act you have just communicated, shall cause their rights to be respected by the English. That sounds good, right? exactly what the U.S. government had intended with Macon's Bill No. 2. However, as we've seen in the narrative to date, and as Armstrong had experienced firsthand many times, Napoleon could not be trusted to abide by what he said he'd do. Armstrong wrote to President Madison, asserting that he believed France wanted to avert war with the United States, but he also felt that, quote, France would content herself by coming within the mere letter of your law and instructions. That is, she will revoke her decrees and make her seizures a subject of future negotiations. As noted by Skeen, quote, the Cador letter announcing the repeal of the Berlin and Milan decrees was unanticipated and arose from unknown motives that Armstrong could only ascribe to a desire for peace with the United States. Before we continue to follow the impact of the Cador letter, let's see if we can identify some of Napoleon's motivations in avoiding a war with the U.S. As discussed in episode 4.9, 1810 was the year that Napoleon annulled his marriage to Josephine and married Marie-Louise of Austria. We also mentioned that there are developments in the Peninsular War. The French emperor's brother, King of Spain, Joseph Bonaparte, had launched a successful expedition into Andalusia early in the year but this success was met by a setback originating with French Emperor Napoleon himself. The emperor issued a decree on February 8, 1810, creating four military governments in Aragon, Catalonia, Navarra, and Vizcaya in northern Spain, and thus removing them from Joseph's control. Worse, these regions and their revenues would now go to support the French army rather than Joseph's government. In the face of continued resistance to his rule, this was a grave threat to any chance Joseph had of establishing order in his new regime, and thus he sent an envoy to plead with his brother to reverse course. 
Napoleon, however, took it one step further by establishing an army of Portugal led by French Marshal André Messina to quell rebellion in that corner, while French Marshal Jean de Dieu Sioux was put in charge of the army in recently conquered Andalusia. Thus, Joseph was effectively in control of the region and forces in and around Madrid. As bad as the situation was for Joseph, their brother Louis was in a much worse state. Louis Bonaparte had been appointed by Emperor Napoleon as the King of Holland in 1806, but in short order, the two brothers found themselves at odds. Napoleon could not understand why his brother Louis would not just do what he said, and instead insisted on being a monarch in his own right, making his own decisions. Though a British invasion of the Low Countries in 1809 would ultimately prove unsuccessful, Louis' action in taking direct command of French forces in the area infuriated the emperor, and he promptly took his brother to task. Louis replied that, quote, You are simply hurting yourself and your dynasty, and it will hurt your majesty more than you realize. Napoleon saw it differently and felt Louis was the one making a mess of things. Thus, he urged his brother to abdicate his throne, something Louis refused to do. But Napoleon was not one to take no for an answer. He kept the pressure on Louis for months, asserting that, quote, if the king abdicates, in no case do I intend to replace him by the prince royal. His throne has been destroyed as a result of the English expedition when the king demonstrated his total inability to defend himself, and therefore Holland can no longer exist. Finally, in July 1810, Louis gave in and abdicated his throne in favor of his son. A few days later, on July 19th, French Emperor Napoleon annexed Holland into the French Empire. Beyond just his family issues, Napoleon was also dealing with potential dissension in the upper ranks, specifically around Marshal Jean-Baptiste Bernadotte. Bernadotte had been with Napoleon since his original Italian campaign in 1797, but he had been slow to join Bonaparte's cause during the coup of 18 Brumaire, which brought him to power. Though he eventually came around, as time went on, Bernadotte increasingly found himself chafing under Napoleon's rule. Indeed, he had joined in an unsuccessful plot against the emperor in Brittany, and in 1809 was implicated in a mobilization of French National Guardsmen that was rumored to be the first step in an insurrection. Though Bernadotte was relieved of his command of forces in Holland, the emperor did not see fit to get rid of the marshal completely. Rather, Napoleon named him to the post of governor-general of Rome. Bernadotte was preparing to take up the post when, on September 4, 1810, he received an offer from the Swedish government to become the heir to that throne. Now, as the Swedish monarch at the time, Carl XIII, was without a legitimate heir, the Swedish government decided to offer Bernadotte the throne upon Karl's death in order to establish a better relationship with Napoleon without offering the throne directly to a Bonaparte. This would remove the immediate threat to Napoleon, but it also points to a larger problem. The longer the Peninsular War and the war with Britain continued on so close to the heartland of his empire and continued to drain his treasury, Napoleon's authority became increasingly challenged and unstable. Thus, we can clearly see why, in 1810, he would be motivated to find some way to retain peace with the United States 
and hopefully gain their support in imposing non-intercourse against Britain to cut off that source of supplies to the British Isles and the British military effort. The problem, however, came in finding a negotiating partner on the American side. John Armstrong was on his way out, and he did not want to get drawn into another round of negotiation with the French, especially considering that he was doubtful that the French would live up to their promises. Thus, for a time, Armstrong simply refused to respond to the Cador letter. Finally, on August 20th, he, quote, wrote Cador two letters, one protesting the attack of French privateers upon American commerce, and the other asking for a full, explicit, and written declaration of the treatment American commerce was destined to meet in the ports of France, etc., both before and after the 1st of November next. Armstrong wanted specifics. Though he wouldn't be the one to deal with the situation, he wanted the government back in Washington to have all the facts before reaching a decision and wrote back to the administration recommending that they hold off on imposing non-intercourse with Britain until they got verification from the French government as to what exactly they were willing to offer. Unfortunately for everyone, as noted by Skeen, quote, French red tape and lagging communications meant a delay in Armstrong's reports getting back to Washington. As those letters made their way across the Atlantic, Armstrong handed off the reins at the Paris legation to Jonathan Russell, the chargé d'affaires, and on September 15, 1810, John Armstrong and his family departed from the French capital to head to Bordeaux to wait for the ship that would take them home. This won't be the last time that we hear from John Armstrong, I assure you. But for now, dear listener, let's leave him here and make our way across La Manche, or the English Channel, and see what's happening in Britain around the same time. As you may recall from episode 4.7, Francis James Jackson's brief tenure as U.S. Minister to Britain had been an abysmal failure. After antagonizing the Madison administration, it hadn't been long before they sent word to U.S. Minister to Britain William Pinckney that he should approach the government of Prime Minister Spencer Percival about replacing Jackson. Pinckney was told on December 27, 1809, that Jackson would be recalled and made the formal request for Jackson's recall a few days later on January 2nd. However, this request would sit unacted on in British Foreign Secretary the Marquess Wellesley's office for two months. Historian William Masterson notes that, though, quote, Wellesley cared nothing for Jackson and had no desire to insult America, the fact was that the new government was weak and the majority in Parliament was violently and contemptuously anti-American. Again, as noted in episode 4.7, Percival had barely managed to form a government at all after the resignation of his predecessor, Lord Portland, in early October 1809. They didn't need to rock the boat that much, especially over such a trivial matter in the minds of London elites as the former American colonies. Finally, though, Wellesley informed Pinckney that Jackson would be replaced, quote, but without any mark of the king's displeasure with his American service and that he would only be replaced by a chargé d'affaires, not a full diplomatic minister. Pinckney could see this for what it was, an intentional slight against the U.S. government. Though Jackson was sent his recall orders on April 14th, 
It wouldn't be until July 1810 that orders were written and the information shared that John Philip Morier was being chosen as the new chargé d'affaires to the United States, though, from what I've read, it seems like the decision had been made in April, as it looks like part of Jackson's instructions were to turn over the mission to Morier. John Philip Morier was described by Masterson as follows, quote, Morier, born in the Ottoman Empire, was the 33-year-old son of a British diplomat and a famous Dutch beauty. His family and political connections with the Wellesleys and other personages, together with minor diplomatic experience, had been sufficient to garner him the American post over the ambitions of Charles Oakley, George Jackson, and others. He was described by George Jackson as a very gentlemanlike and intelligent man with a very favorable impression of Francis Jackson's proceedings in America and a preference for more spirited conduct of the same kind. In other words, he was a high Tory with all the arrogant prejudice that had nullified Jackson's higher ability. Francis James Jackson had received his instructions from the Foreign Secretary on July 7th and waited around for Morier's arrival in early September to formally hand off the diplomatic mission. Morier's arrival would come at a timely moment, as we'll return to, but let's finish up with Jackson. As a final act, on September 15th, quote, Jackson composed his last dispatch, a mammoth comprehensive view of the society, economic prospects, and political structure of the United States. The next day, he and his wife were on their way back to England. However, the British government had little time to bother with welcoming Jackson back upon his arrival, for there was much ado about the British royal family. In the early morning hours of May 31, 1810, a valet had assaulted Ernest Augustus, Duke of Cumberland, and the fifth son of King George III, wounding him to the point of requiring some time to recover. This caused a minor scandal, but the government was increasingly worried about royal affairs later in the year as the 72-year-old king, in addition to being for all intents and purposes blind, began to show signs of falling back into the mysterious state of illness that had plagued him off and on over the years, which was described as a manic disorder. His condition worsened as Princess Amelia, the king's youngest and, described as his favorite, daughter, grew seriously ill around the time of the golden anniversary of the king's accession in late October. On November 2nd, Amelia died, and two days later, George III was in a straitjacket. Beyond just the delicate balance of trying to accurately gauge the capacity, or perhaps more accurately, the incapacity of the head of state of the United Kingdom, the Percival Ministry was under threat with the circumstances, as the Prince of Wales, also named George, was friendly with the opposition. Further, the prince and all of his younger brothers pushed for Percival to appoint the prince as the prince regent to rule on his father's behalf. With this threat to the continued existence of the government, not to mention the constant threat posed by Napoleon and his empire, it helps to understand some of what happened next in terms of the British response once news of the Cador letter reached Washington and the Madison administration reacted. Words start trickling into the United States in late September, and President Madison himself learned of the Cador letter through unofficial channels on September 25th. The fact that Emperor Napoleon was willing to lift the dreaded decrees for American shipping was great news, but the president saw one problem. 
in the accounts he received, there was the date of November 1st, which was mentioned in the letter. Given that this was just over a month away, it sounded like Madison would have to make a decision quick, and possibly without official word of the letter arriving. Given what had happened with the repudiation of the Erskine Agreement, one can see where students of the history of the Madison presidency would criticize him for not learning his lesson. But I'd caution that we need to look at the whole picture here. Due to the lag in communication at the time, it was a difficult circumstance, to be sure, especially considering Napoleon's known mercurial temperament. If you will recall, with the Louisiana Purchase back in the Jefferson presidency, there was a rumor circulating that Napoleon was having seller's remorse, which prompted Jefferson to agree to push the deal through, despite his constitutional objections, for fear of losing such a large swath of territory. With so much to keep up with in terms of European affairs and how they impacted the situation in the Americas, having to make decisions without all the information was a reality of the circumstances. Sometimes, things turned out well. Other times, well, you ended up with the Erskine Agreement fiasco. I say that, but now I must also point out that, according to Skeen, Armstrong's reports on the situation in Paris arrived on November 1st, the day prior to Madison taking action. Madison biographer Ralph Ketchum confirms that the letters arrived on the state, though he asserts that Armstrong's, quote, dispatches merely conveyed Cador's letter with no indication that he had pressed the Frenchman, i.e. Cador, for clarification. Before we get to Madison's response, let's put all of this into context. As we discussed last episode, Madison had issued his proclamation ordering the occupation of West Florida on October 27th, so those deliberations were happening at the same time as Madison was wrestling with what to do about the Cador letter, and possibly checking multiple times each day to see if any new dispatches or information had arrived. There were concerns about the situation in the West, with Tecumseh and Tenskwatawa building a confederacy, possibly with French assistance, that could threaten American interests there. Rumors were flying that Britain may be interested in taking West Florida, which would create a scenario where New Orleans might have to be abandoned. The Cador letter was the opening that the administration had hoped for when they had put forward Macon's Bill No. 2. The French had potentially taken the bait, and, as described by Ketchum, quote, Madison thought Napoleon's self-interest would make him see the advantage of accepting the American good-faith interpretation of the Cador letter in order to unite America against England. That nation, on the other hand, seeing the United States driven into the arms of France by the orders in council, would see her stake in withdrawing them to save for herself the immense benefits of American commerce. Besides, the next step in this process was not imposing non-intercourse, but rather opening up trade with the French in order to invite the British to revoke the odious orders in council and restoring peaceful neutral trading with both nations. Given where he was at and the information he had at hand, Madison saw an opportunity and he felt that he had to take it. Thus, on November 2nd, 1810, President Madison issued a proclamation asserting that, quote, Whereas it has been officially made known to this government that the edicts of France violating the neutral commerce of the United States have been so revoked as to cease to have effect on the first of the present month. Now, therefore, I, James Madison, President of the United States, 
do hereby proclaim that the said edicts of France have been so revoked as that they ceased on the said first day of the present month to violate the neutral commerce of the United States, and that from the date of these presents, all the restrictions imposed by the aforesaid act shall cease and be discontinued in relation to France and her dependencies. West Florida was on its way to becoming a part of the U.S. Trade was restored with France, with hopefully Britain soon to follow. Perhaps, just perhaps, things were starting to look up for the Madison administration. Then, a week later, new letters arrived with the details of the French emperor's proposal. As Armstrong had feared, Napoleon had no intention of releasing any American vessels that had been captured prior to November 1st. That issue would have to be settled separately. Further, as part of his continental system meant to control trade in and out of Europe, Napoleon intended to use the licenses granted to engage with trade with the continent to restrict American trade. While this was disappointing news, it was not absolutely devastating, especially if the opening up of trade on the American part prompted action by the British to resolve the issues between the two nations. If nothing else went wrong, there was still a chance. Yeah, I imagine that you're just like I am, dear listener, and waiting for the next thing to go wrong. So let's go ahead and get to that, shall we? As you can imagine, the situation in the southwestern U.S., which encompassed most of what we now think of as the state of Louisiana, was rather tense in the wake of the West Florida Rebellion and annexation. The tension in the area had been growing for a bit, however, as the region had experienced a massive population boom. We discussed how, in the wake of the Haitian Revolution, there had been an outflux of refugees to other points in the Caribbean and the Gulf of Mexico. One of the major intake points had been the Spanish colony of Cuba. As we discussed last episode, Cuba was facing its own issues in the form of constant slave uprisings. And though it's beyond the scope of this podcast to delve too much into this, one has to imagine that there was a correlation between the large influx of refugees and the instability in the colony. With the Spanish occupation of Spain, the Captain General of Cuba, a person that we encountered back in episode 4.5, Salvador José de Muro y Salazar, the second Marquis of Somoreros, decided that these French refugees from the former colony of Saint-Domingue posed a potential security risk to Cuba, and thus, on April 11, 1809, quote, issued a proclamation evicting all Frenchmen who were not naturalized citizens, giving them no more than 40 days to leave. With British domination of the high seas, going back to France was problematic. Saint-Domingue, or Haiti as it was now known, was not an option. The only remaining French colony in the Caribbean at the time was the small island of Guadeloupe, and even it would be lost to the British in less than a year, though naturally folks in April 1809 had no way of knowing that. Still, there was only limited capacity on Guadeloupe. So what other options did these refugees have? That's right, La Nouvelle-Orléans, the former French colony of Louisiana, where there was already a strong French Creole presence. To be fair, some of the refugees went to other American port cities, including Baltimore, Charleston, and Norfolk. But between May 10th and August 19th of that year, at least 55 ships traveled from Cuba bound for New Orleans with refugees. 
As noted by historian William C. Davis, quote, In 1805, New Orleans had 8,475 people. By December 1809, 9,059 refugees had stepped ashore at the levee. Of them, 2,731 were white, 3,102 were free-colored, and 3,226 were slaves. Another thousand came in the early months of 1810. With such a large influx of refugees, you can imagine that this created issues on the ground in New Orleans. Initially, though, city and territorial leaders thought that this new influx may actually be to their benefit as it would bring new capital and skilled workers into the city and territory. There quickly developed a problem, however. Did I mention the large number of enslaved individuals that made up the population of the refugees? If you'll recall from episode 3.20, a couple of years prior, Congress had put into place a ban on the importation of enslaved individuals to the United States. This included those enslaved by foreign nationals seeking refuge in the U.S. As noted by Davis, quote, For refugees forced practically to give away most other property, slaves, if they had them, were their only transportable capital assets other than currency. By order of Orleans Territorial Governor William Claiborne, though the white and free-colored refugees were allowed to disembark in New Orleans, the enslaved individuals had to remain on the ships which were subsequently, quote, impounded to prevent them from either departing with the property of the refugees or secretly allowing that property to come ashore. The enslaved individuals were forced to live on the ships for months until, in July 1809, Claiborne announced a new policy whereby the enslaved individuals could, quote, come ashore if their owners posted bond, guaranteeing that the blacks would be produced if and when required as the local federal court or Washington decided whether or not they could stay as exceptions to the recent law. Ultimately, the situation would be resolved by a congressional exemption to the slave importation ban granted to the refugees. Even with that, though, the situation for the refugees was still precarious, and they scrambled to figure out what they could do in order to integrate into Louisiana society and get on their feet. For some, That meant selling the enslaved individuals that they had brought into the country in order to get some liquid currency. For others, it meant putting those enslaved individuals to work in some of the growing industries in the territory, for the refugees were not the only impact that the Haitian Revolution had on Louisiana. As noted in episode 3.5, Saint-Domingue, under French control, had been a lucratively profitable exporter of sugar. But with the revolution... The sugar plantations had mostly gone up in flames, and there was a sudden drop in the sugar supply to meet global demand. At the beginning of the 19th century, plantation owners in Louisiana saw an opportunity, and as noted by historian Daniel Rasmussen, quote, by 1802, a mere seven years after the first planter in Louisiana converted his entire plantation to sugar, Louisiana boasted 70 sugar plantations, producing over 3,000 tons of sugar per year. While Louisiana's yield still paled in comparison to what Haiti had produced in its prime, these numbers were enough to attract merchants from all over the eastern seaboard. Though the white planters saw this as a land of opportunity, in its midst, there was also much danger from the fear of something else that might have been imported from Haiti namely, thoughts of uprisings 
and rebellion. As described by Rasmussen, quote, To the planners, the Haitian rebels were like rabid dogs. They saw insanity and bloodlust rather than any political vision or humanistic ideal. Like enslavers in other parts of the United States and beyond, those in Louisiana, after hearing the reports of how the black revolutionaries in Saint-Domingue had brutalized whites in the uprising there, feared that this would inspire those black individuals that they enslaved to do the same. Rather than causing them to rethink the practice of slavery, or at the very least adopting more lenient approaches to those they enslaved, most instead yielded the whip ever harder and more often. Again, from Rasmussen, quote, Louisiana was becoming known for its brutal conditions. When slaves across the United States spoke with dread of being sold south or sold down the river, they were speaking of the slave plantations around New Orleans. Nowhere in America was slavery as exploitative or were profits as high as in the cane fields of Louisiana. Slaves worked longer hours, faced more brutal punishments, and lived shorter lives than any other slave society in North America. Even with this, though, as we've seen in other communities of enslaved individuals, information was exchanged, and particularly with the importation of enslaved individuals from the Caribbean legally prior to 1808, and, except for the exemption given to the refugees from Cuba, illegally through a thriving black market operation run by Jean and Pierre Lafitte out of Barataria Bay, there is little doubt that the Haitian Revolution was known about by many in the enslaved population of Orleans territory. This was not the only inspiration or influence at play, however. Beyond just slave uprisings that had happened in the area previously, one of which we discussed way back in episode 1.24, as noted by Rasmussen, quote, prior to the sugar boom, New Orleans was a poor, multicultural city with very few social controls. The lines between slavery and freedom were not clearly drawn, and slaves frequently escaped into the swamps to form maroon colonies. There was a history of armed resistance in these areas that drew on French, Creole, and Congolese traditions. These insurrectionary traditions shaped the lives of the slaves and represented an alternative political culture to that of the planters. This, dear listener, is where we must return to Charles de Longue, who we met at the end of last episode. Before you do, though, I'd like to issue a quick warning here. As you would imagine, with an insurrection, there is violence involved. So if you'd like to end this episode here, I completely understand. I'll discuss the ramifications of this uprising in future episodes. As stated in the last episode, Charles Delonde was a slave driver, which meant that he had gangs of slaves out in the fields at the Andre Plantation reporting to him. As described by Rasmussen, quote, Planners like Andre relied on drivers like Charles to listen to their slaves, to understand their problems, and to keep an ear open for discontent. More often than not, drivers fulfilled the function of diminishing tensions between whites and blacks, keeping the machinery of the slave plantation going. Delonde, however, had an agenda beyond protecting Manuel Andre's plantation operations. He, along with two other enslaved individuals named Quamana and Henry Kenner, were planning an insurrection. In 1810, they worked to spread the word among close-knit circles of enslaved individuals on plantations up and down the Mississippi River between Baton Rouge and New Orleans in a region known as the German Coast. As the new year of 1811 dawned, 
It was time for their plans to come to fruition. That time of year was marked by white planter families either hosting parties at their homes or traveling to New Orleans to participate in celebrations around Christmas and Epiphany. For the enslaved population, it marked a rare time of rest as seasonal rainstorms meant a pause in work around the plantation. It was this time that the revolutionaries planned to make their move. The night of January 8th found Manuel André and his son Gilbert asleep in their mansion. Charles Delon and his compatriots slipped into the André residence and made their way to the second floor. Delon had an axe in hand, while those with him had cane knives that were typically used to cut sugar cane, but were being employed in the cause of freedom on this night. Unfortunately for Delonde and those with him, André woke up and managed to make his way past them. His son, Gilbert, was not quite so fortunate and met his end at the hands of those that he and his father had enslaved. Manuel made his way out of the mansion to a piro on the levee, which he put into the water to escape. No matter. Delonde had other matters to attend to. After dealing with Gilbert, the revolutionaries, quote, broke into the stores in the basement of André's mansion, taking muskets and militia uniforms stockpiled in case of domestic insurrection. Delonde and others donned the militia uniforms, knowing that they, quote, would lend the revolt authority. Equipped and ready for battle, Delonde and the rebel army began marching down the river road, which would lead them to New Orleans. As described by Rasmussen, quote, in those dark early morning moments, The slave quarters for miles around erupted. Slaves ran from door to door, whispering the news, and small conferences gathered in tight quarters as men and women weighed their options. To risk death and join Charles and his men, or stay behind in safety. Armed with plantation tools and primed by revolutionary ideals, roughly one quarter of the slaves on the plantations along the river road gathered on the levee to meet the marching rebels and join the insurrection. This rebel army continued on its path as planners, hearing of this approaching force, mostly fled into the swamps for safety. One planner, Francois Trepagnier, decided to stand his ground, but he was quickly taken out by the rebel force. For a time, it seemed that this army would be unstoppable, and New Orleans was particularly vulnerable at this point since troops which had been positioned to secure West Florida were still trying to ensure law and order in that newly acquired territory for the United States. This did not mean, however, that New Orleans was completely at the mercy of Delonde and his approaching force. Orleans Territorial Governor William Claiborne learned of the slave uprising just before noon on January 9th from General Wade Hampton. The two gathered together with the mayor of New Orleans and other government officials and made plans, quote, to seal the city. This included securing all the bridges leading into New Orleans and closing down any establishments where the public could gather to plot. By six that evening, General Hampton, quote, had marshaled two companies of volunteer militia and 30 regular troops to meet the rebels. Meanwhile, Delonde and his army continued to march on finding one plantation after another, quote, empty except for the slaves. The planters they had intended to surprise and kill were gone. The initial members of this force were starting to feel fatigued, but new recruits brought fresh energy into the mix, and at one of the plantations, they found horses 
which they can mount to make the journey ahead easier. Even Maroons who had escaped enslavement and established homes in the swamps started to emerge and join in the march to New Orleans. That night, the rebel army arrived at, quote, Canbrule, about 15 miles northwest of New Orleans. They continued on from there to the next plantation. As described by Rasmussen, quote, documentary evidence links 124 individual slaves to the revolt, while eyewitness observers estimated their numbers at between 200 and 500, rivaling the size of the American military force in the region. The rebel army was now composed almost entirely of young men between 20 and 30 who had been employed as unskilled or low-skilled workers. Despite their impressive numbers, some guns and horses, the slave army was not well-armed. They would also make a fatal mistake when they realized that General Hampton was leading his force up the river road to meet them in battle. Deland and his force turned around and headed back the way they came. Manuel André, in fleeing from the initial attack, had traveled across the river to the plantation of Charles Perret, and the two gathered a force of 80 planters to oppose the rebel army. As noted by Rasmussen, quote, the planters had unwittingly flanked the slave army. Expecting the only resistance to emerge from New Orleans, the slaves had not anticipated such a rearguard action. Though the formerly enslaved individuals met this planter militia on the field of battle confidently, they quickly found themselves outmatched as they ran out of ammunition and their lines collapsed. Again, from Rasmussen, quote, as the slaves ran for the swamps, they would have heard the desperate cries of the wounded, who knew that they would soon be chopped up by furious white planters. A strange silence settled, pierced only by the shrieks and groans of the wounded. A massacre was underway. Charles Delon died after first being assaulted by dogs unleashed on the rebels fleeing into the swamps. Then, quote, according to one witness, the militiamen chopped off Charles's hands, broke his thighs, shot him dead, and then roasted his remains on a pile of straw. As with the Haitian Revolution, white histories of this uprising have often focused on the brutality of the insurrectionists against the white population, but I thought it important to share a few details of the brutality committed against individuals who were fighting for their freedom from oppressive and cruel enslavement. Again, from Rasmussen, quote, Reprisals continued unabated on Saturday as the militia came upon a band of rebels hiding out in the woods. The militiamen did more than murder. They hacked off the men's heads and delivered them to the Andre estate. This was very much an extra-legal judgment and execution process. As we saw in episode 2.22, where we discussed the aftermath of Gabriel's rebellion in Virginia in 1800, Though heavily inclined against the insurrectionist, there was typically a legal due process in responding to rebellions of enslaved individuals. This, however, was not Virginia, and this was after the ultimate success of the Haitian Revolution in establishing an independent nation of formerly enslaved individuals. The German Coast Uprising of 1811 played on the ever-present fears of the white planters and would lead to increasing paranoia and laws to further limit not only enslaved individuals, but free blacks as well. 
We'll get more into that in future episodes, for our time together has drawn to a close. Thank you so much again to Sean and Alex for providing the intro quotes for this episode. Be sure to check out the Advent of Computing wherever fine podcasts can be found or by going to adventofcomputing, all one word, dot com. Special thanks also to the itinerant band for providing clips from their rendition of Jefferson and Liberty as the intro and outro music for this episode. I would also be remiss if I didn't thank Christian of Your Podcast Pal for his audio editing work on this episode. Having a good editor to work with can make all the difference for a podcaster, and Christian is top-notch. If you'd like to enlist his services for your podcast or next audio project, check out his website at yourpodcastpal, that's all one word, dot com. If you'd like to learn more about the sources that I use for this episode, listen to past episodes, or explore my list of online resources and other podcasts covering presidents from Washington to Biden, be sure to check out the website at Presidency's Podcast. That's all one word, dot com. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to reach out to me at Presidency's Podcast, again, all one word, at gmail.com. You can also connect with me on social media. I'm available on Facebook and Mastodon at Presidency's, on Twitter at Presidency's 89, and on Instagram at Presidency's Podcast. That's right, all one word. Last but certainly not least, I'd like to thank you for listening. Until next time, stay safe and healthy, be kind to one another, and take care, dear friends. Hello everyone, my name is Tom Kearns and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go.